Welcome to the 301st of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I'm joined by a co-host, Eleanor Mays. And let me introduce you to Eleanor. I'm just thrilled to have her join me here today. Hi, I'm Eleanor Mays. Um, my pronouns are she, her. I'm coming to you from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, I currently serve as a production assistant and transcription director for COVID calls. I recently completed my master's in material science and engineering at the University of Minnesota this past semester, and I previously attended the University of Chicago for my undergraduate degree. Um, I plan on attending UC Berkeley this fall for their master's in design program. And in my spare time, I enjoy reading about typography, disability studies, LGBTQ plus activism, and the history of science. It's good to be here. Welcome, Eleanor. And it's, it's great to have you uh, co-hosting. We've had some other great co-hosts in the past. Shivani Patel and Felicia Henry just finished up um, her run as a, as a host in COVID calls. And I just want to acknowledge for a second um, that you agreed to help out with COVID calls few months ago. And I think the brief for what you've been doing has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger as we've been trying to get the whole project up in the research portal. And I want to acknowledge the great job you've done for that and, um, and for also saying yes to agreeing to co-host. It really uh, needs a lot to me. So thanks again for doing this. So this just, just hop in on this and it's, it's, you know, it's only getting more exciting with all the new new add-ons, so it's great. I just want to remind everybody that you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also occasionally catch COVID Calls at 5.30 p.m. Korea time when we make special announcements when those broadcasts are taking place. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at USOdisaster or at COVID calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. And we'll introduce our guest for today, Stuart Landers, for our conversation about health in the LGBTQ community in the context of COVID in just a moment. Elnor, I'll turn it over to you now. Um, so first, just some numbers. So as of today, June 30th, 2021, there are 3,937,985 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. Um, in the United States, 604,467 604, have died from COVID-19. In Mexico, uh, at this moment, uh, 232,803 people have died of the disease. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers on COVID calls, we've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by, uh, by COVID-19 and the pandemic. June has historically been LGBTQ plus Pride Month here in the U.S., and although uh, the lingering effects of the pandemic have caused many organizers to push events later into the summer for, for Pride um, in hopes of uh, having more participants be vaccinated, uh, we thought we'd get started uh, on time with, with Pride Month um, with this episode today. 
So in honor of Pride Month, I'd like to read a story of advocacy for LGBTQ, LGBTQ youth during the pandemic. The headline is, um, sorry, uh, the this story is from the Washington Blade and um, the headline is the pandemic only made things worse. This was written by Sarah Gandhuri and Sydney Johnson and was published originally on June 7th, 2021. Gandhuri and Johnson were participants in Baltimore's Urban Health Media Project from spring 2021. Uh, that workshop was entitled Homesick, How Where We Live Impacts Health. Squashed between friends on a plush couch at a shelter for homeless LGBTQ plus young people, Jada Dahl, 22, talked about what happened after she began to express her identity as a transgender woman. She moved in with her boyfriend when she was a senior in high school, but Dahl, her chosen name, said her family refused to let her back into their Manassas, Virginia home when the couple broke up because she had begun to identify as female. She wound up in the nearby woods that became her home for almost three years. When it was raining, I couldn't feel my toes, said Dahl. She lived under a canopy of trees protected from the elements only by flimsy tents. Hygiene and privacy were the first casualties. She recalled having to use a water bottle to shower with everyone watching and survived off of just about anything like raw stuff. Dahl suffered insomnia and panic attacks that continued even in the safe haven of Casa Ruby, the shelter she entered, which reported a 60% increase in clients in the past year. The nonprofit in the DuPont Circle neighborhood offers housing, preventative health care, and social services to LGBTQ plus youth. Before the pandemic, LGBTQ plus youth had a higher risk of homelessness and health problems that come with it, from nagging toothaches to lifelong trauma. Then COVID-19 forced families to stay home together, exacerbating domestic conflicts over gender and sexuality that have driven some young people into the street. Many of the new homeless had no choice. Violence against LGBTQ plus youth often starts at home, said Keith Pollard, a case manager at Supporting and Mentoring Youth Advocates and Leaders, or SMILE, a Washington nonprofit that shelters about three dozen homeless LGBTQ plus youth. About 95% of SMILE residents were thrown out because of their sexuality or gender identity. Our folks have had a lot of people give up on them, Pollard said. Parents or guardians give up on them because they don't agree with their sexuality or gender identity and kick them out. Teachers, foster parents, or group homes also give up on kids sometimes, he said, just because they're troubled. Being homeless can lead to a multitude of health and safety issues, but LGBTQ plus youth face unique additional challenges. Fear of violence looms over their heads, both on the street and in public shelters. Some shelters, Dahl said, are like jail. Other residents, she said, can hurt us and they don't care if they hurt us. The streets can be even worse. Dahl said insults are hurled at LGBTQ plus youth. They see you as a prostitute. Physical health suffers as well. Pollard said that when young people come in off the street, they're often malnourished or underweight. That plus lack of sleep can also lead to attention deficits, mood disorders, suppressed immunity to disease and infection, Many suffer from trans sexually transmitted diseases and infections, including HIV. Homelessness itself exacts a cost which the pandemic has only increased. As a result of COVID restrictions, Pollard said, his organization saw an increase in drug and alcohol use, as well as physical and verbal altercations. A lot of folks were doing things that were pretty risky, such as going outside without a mask, interacting with large groups of people, just because they could not take the isolation. Casa Ruby aims to be more than a shelter, 
but also a home where queer, transgender, and gender non-conforming people can escape fear of discrimination, harassment, and violence. Above all, places like Casa Ruby and Smile try to offer the one thing their young clients often lack, consistency. Thank you for sharing that, Eleanor. And let me now turn to our conversation for today and let me introduce our guest, Stuart Landers. Stuart Landers, JD MCP, is a senior consultant at John Snow, Inc. With over 30 years of experience working on public health systems and practice related to chronic disease, wellness, HIV, AIDS, mental health and substance abuse treatment, LGBTQ health, emergency preparedness and immunization. Mr. Landers conducted two of the first large-scale LGBTQ health needs assessments in Santa Clara County, California, and for the state of Rhode Island. Mr. Landers is an associate editor for the American Journal of Public Health, focused on LGBTQ health, including HIV and chronic disease prevention and control. He's currently curating a collection of articles on COVID-19 and the LGBTQ community. He's published in a wide variety of journals, including the New England Journal of Medicine, the Journal of the American Medical Association, as well as AJPH. Stewart served on the Massachusetts Commission on LGBTQ Youth from 2010 to 2018. Stuart Landers, welcome to COVID Calls. Thank you so much, Scott and Eleanor. It's a pleasure to be here. I'd like to start out, if we could, the way we usually do on COVID calls, just to find out where you're calling from and what the COVID-19 situation or the vaccine situation might be looking like there today. Um, I am calling from Boston, Massachusetts, and uh, Massachusetts has done well with its vaccinations. It cut off to a somewhat slow start, but at this point, uh, we have vaccinated uh, over 60%, fully vaccinated over 60% of the adult population and about uh, 72% have received at least uh, one dose of vaccine. Uh, the case counts and the deaths uh, and the hospitalizations have come down substantially in the past month plus. And so we are sort of cautiously, but with deliberation, uh, poking our heads out uh, and you don't see too many masks on the street anymore. Uh, and the place you mostly see them are stores, which are often still um, asking customers to mask up. But we're just literally beginning in, you know, indoor dining, going back to restaurants, uh, starting to see families. Uh, I know a lot of colleagues and friends last week, this week, next week are seeing their families for the first time in 15 months. I would just wonder about, you know, what your work situation has been. It, it appears that you're calling from an office, although I'm not 100% sure about that. People have done some really wonderful things with their homes and turned them into offices. <laughs> but are you back in the office space? So our office is not open. Uh, you, can, it is, you can go into it, uh, although we have a screening mechanism that both focuses on uh, symptomology as well as uh, we actually uh, created an algorithm so that you would have to socially distance. If someone within six feet of your desk or carol had already reserved the spot, your spot would no longer be available. That being said, I have uh, to this day uh, been coming in once or twice a week, and I can go weeks without seeing another person. 
So if you don't, if you don't mind, I, I was going to follow up with one more question. I particularly we've been asking this question of North American guests, where this situation, as you described, is one that people are kind of re-entering something that appears um, to resemble life before February of last year. Which is just if you, if you wouldn't mind sort of thinking back and maybe sharing one of your strongest memories or associations of this COVID pandemic. Um, so my career is in public health, and I think one of the, uh, there were two really striking things for me. The first was when in the United States, a lot of uh, public health uh, leaders, directors of uh, state, but mostly county and local health departments started to be harassed. Uh, uh, there was a very abnormal situation, I would say, uh, you know, really blaming the messenger. And, uh, you know, a lot of people left jobs. I mean, these jobs were very stressful and people were working incredible hours and doing everything they could to try and keep people safe. And then to be vilified, harassed, have people threaten them, uh, congregate outside their homes. I, I just was really shocked and disappointed. And even the second part was globally to see health workers, healthcare workers, doctors and nurses, similarly being vilified as if they had been the cause, as if they were transmitting it from patient to patient or whatever misconceptions people had about their role in the pandemic. And again, for people who were putting their lives at risk to help others, to see them, uh, you know, in India, there were a lot of uh, pub well-publicized attacks, uh, but I'm sure it was not limited to, to India. And so it, that, I found those things to be the most disturbing. You know, thanks for sharing that. I'm going to turn it over to Eleanor here, but I just, it really resonates with me. I remember, I don't know if you remember this, there were some photographs that appeared either in the Times or in the Washington Post last spring there were healthcare workers um, who were basically having a sort of a demonstration outside of a hospital. And they were simultaneously asking for more PPE. So they were asking for more protection, but they were also just out there saying to the public, this is real and you need to wear a mask. Mm -hmm. And the photograph captured people driving by who were yelling and screaming at them. And I thought, I've never seen anything in my lifetime. Yeah where the healthcare providers, as you're describing, had become the targets of such ire. That really told me we were in in something. I had forgotten about that photograph until you shared that that memory. Thanks for that. Yeah, I'm, I, I, the healthcare workers are really unsung heroes. And, you know, the situation we're describing reminds me of how we've started to talk about uh, how the military could be marginalized that you know only I don't know 1.5 to 2% of people have family in the military. So we tend not to, as a society, really understand and recognize the sacrifice that they do. And while I'm sure healthcare is probably a bigger sector of our economy than the military, it felt like that. It felt like there was this whole world where people were behaving crazy and 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 yet this critical, critically needed sector was under such stress and strain, and yet uh, also being uh, 
viewed in a suspicious way when, when you know, for the most part, we've always viewed our healthcare workers with respect. I'd like to jump off of that. And you, you mentioned your background in, in public health, and I was curious how you got uh, into specifically the research that you do that has such emphasis on public health and, and the LGBTQ community. Well, Could you elaborate on that? Sure, about? sure. Um, I actually uh, became involved, I was actually sort of a gay activist before I was involved in public health. And I had studied law and city planning. And by the time I was out in the world, I found some uh, research connected with Fenway Community Health. And it was right at the time when the first HIV cases were showing up in the city of Boston. And it was, it was a very, very difficult time. I mean, people were just beginning to grasp the horror of what was unfolding with HIV. And so I just took on one project and then another project. And then I worked for the state health department at, in HIV AIDS. And there was a, I don't know, aphorism may be a little strong, but people used to say working in AIDS was like getting a public health degree. And while my city planning training had parallels in terms of a lot of the skill set, uh, I realized after 10 years of public health HIV work that uh, I had these skills and, and actually I had a public health career. And just my nature is to want to, uh, to you know, do different things. So I've continued to do HIV work, but I've also, as my introduction said, to have done chronic disease. And, and then what was interesting is that we started to sort of look at health through a disparities lens. And there started to be more acknowledgement that racial and ethnic minorities had different health outcomes. And so I thought, well, I think LGBTQ people probably have some different outcomes too, but there was no data. And so it was very challenging. And it was only through the sort of uh, and, and, and it was a vicious circle because, because there was no uh, data in representative samples. A lot of the data came from convenience samples, going to people in bars or gay pride marches. And publications of, wouldn't necessarily uh, publish it because it wasn't a representative sample. And, 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 you know, and I think that was not a terrible thing because... It probably did provide a distorted view of the community, but we did start to see that there were differences. And finally, advocates began to get questions about sexual orientation and later gender identity and expression onto surveys. And so I was able to publish data uh, based on the Massachusetts Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System, which had, was one of the states, there were others, but one of the early states to include that data. And once that information started to flow out, the the field started to grow. And, uh, you know, it's, as with many things in the LGBT community, and we'll probably get more into this with COVID, uh, unfortunately, the resources 
uh, are often not there to really fully explore it. Or as again, not, not to preview, but <laughs> we may you know talk about the fact that uh, the data for COVID and the LGBT community is really wanting. Yeah, I my, my partner works through the Department of Public Health here in Minnesota and listening to just anecdotes, anecdotes she's passed on to me about how um, the resistance that is still faced with trying to collect COVID data as it as it pertains to LGBTQ individuals is still very much an uphill uphill struggle, which, you know, it's surprising because because, you know, you'd think that the the turnaround in, in asking for this sort of data would have permeated more widely through through public health. But we, I think it, it just took, you know, another pandemic to see that it's still not established as firmly that to be a norm of, of on when collecting data about about uh, individuals with who have had COVID-19 or encountered other aspects of COVID-19. So thank you for, for pointing that out. Um, and while we're on the topic of COVID-19 and uh, LGBTQ individuals, is there, for as much as, as, the, as the data that we have been able to capture, is, is there, um, have you noticed a unique impact on the community in terms of, of the pandemic and, and LGBTQ uh, individuals? Absolutely. And I mean, the good news is researchers are pretty smart. <laughs> so there's actually sort of other data that has is routinely collected, um, not and I'll get more to like the direct data. But for example, there's there's data that shows that um, LGBTQ people are more uh, than about well forty about forty percent compared to twenty two percent of uh, heteronormative heterosexual folks uh, work in service industries, and when you think about it, not to stereotype. <laughs> but when you think about the fields that were heavily impacted economically, entertainment, production of, of, of entertainment, of movies, uh, plays, symphonies, concerts, opera, restaurants, waiters, <laughs> um, hair, hairdressers, you know, there were a lot of service industries where LGBTQ people are heavily represented. And uh, so, but we, you know, but there's not been good direct surveys of the, of how LGBTQ people have been impacted economically yet. Some of those may flow because there are some surveys, including some federal surveys that do include questions about, about uh, sexual orientation, uh, but they, they're not, they weren't geared for the kind of rapid turnaround. So we may see like the general social survey is one that may, we may start to see the impact on employment. BR, some of the state BRFSS as I mentioned earlier. But then the other piece is how vulnerable are LGBTQ people to the COVID virus and, and getting sick. And again, the data, direct data is very poor, are very poor with respect to how, uh, what we know about uh, testing, infection rates, uh, hospitalizations, and deaths. But pre this prior set of research that fortunately has been enabled by the places that have added these questions have told, taught us that uh, 
uh, LGBTQ people, generally speaking, have higher rates of smoking and higher rates of respiratory disease. COVID is a respiratory illness. So for people who already may have more limited lung capacity, asthma, uh, COPD, uh, they're likely to be more like, likely to be um, uh, hospitalized. Uh, and, and there are some other you know, similarities uh, along the way like that. Um, uh, the the res smoking respiratory illness, uh, some parts of the LGBT community tend to uh, be more likely to be overweight or obese. Um, and so there are a whole set of health disparities that we know. Uh, HIV, right, is disproportionately impacted in uh, the uh, gay male community in particular and the trans community to trans female community. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the damage to the immune system uh, and the potentially other illnesses that, that people have had associated with HIV may have made them more vulnerable to COVID. We have some very limited data so far, but some indication uh, that they are. So there's a lot to, 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 you know, hang your hat on about it. And it makes it even more frustrating um, at least five states and the District of Columbia have either um, have had uh, the governors uh, do uh, you know proclamations or uh, executive orders requiring the collection of this data. California actually has passed a law requiring collection of uh, gender expression and sexual orientation identity in health uh, surveys, even in those states, it has not happened. Or to the extent it has happened, it has not been reported. It sounds just like that, you know, research are researchers are left to kind of taking a kind of, um, kind of background approach and kind of working backwards to try and piece together um, kind of this, the, the relevant COVID data to the LGBTQ community um, based on intersections with other with other risk groups and, and other factors. Um, I know that uh, the, the data collection um, in particularly back in the early, uh, late winter um, when the vaccine was, was slowly being released out to individuals who were, you know, 65 plus and, and so on, um, there was some uh, feedback from, I, I talked to my partner about this, that uh, the questions about sexual orientation and gender identity um, were seen by some to be uh, less relevant to that age group. And so you have, you know, these different interactions with with uh, different intersections of, of age and, and identity also playing, uh, kind of complicating um, the ability to gather data for the, for the LGBTQ community. In terms of how I know you mentioned HIV and and um, and COVID and how uh, different individuals within the the community um, are impacted more adversely than others. In your research, you've you've focused previously on on transgender health issues, um, and I was just wondering if there's been a continuation and sort of a divergence of of how COVID nineteen has has impacted um, particularly trans tra the trans community versus versus the rest of the, the LGBTQ community. Mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And I do think there's a divergence. For example, uh, just in terms of, of the data piece we were discussing, what's always interesting to me is that uh, sexual orientation, you do have to ask explicitly. But gender is something that is routinely collected. And I've been amazed in the you know recent years how many very mainstream organizations have started to add more choices to the gender question. The mass, the mass bar association, you know, there's just like, you know, places you wouldn't think are now giving other options beyond um, male or female. Uh, so to the extent there is some data, some of it's out of California and it is about the transgender community. Um, and it, it, uh, uh, ha it unfortunately has shown, uh, it has shown if anything that there's, there's fewer trans people than you might even expect be um, getting uh, tested. This was testing data. So, so that's very disappointing. And then uh, just in terms of the sort of uh, amount of stigma that the transgender community continues to face and the uh, economic hardship because of that stigma, uh, there is a lot of uh, anxiety and illness, mental illness, that has been exacerbated by the pandemic. And one, one study that we will be publishing in AJPH uh, has, again, as I said, researchers are pretty smart. So they were able to find a uh, panel, uh, more and more people are using impaneled uh, respondents that was um, representative of uh, five major US cities. And they asked uh, those individuals uh, about sexual orientation and about gender identity, and it was uh, about, and and it was, the survey focused on uh, mental health and uh, substance use disorders, including uh, uh, alcohol use, and it found higher rates of uh, binge drinking and uh, emotional distress among the LGB population. Unfortunately, even in that panel, the T population did have uh, added emotional distress, but the, the and the number of self-identified trans people in that survey were too small to really make it relevant or reliable in terms of the data. So, so again, sometimes the struggles, sometimes the, the issues are different. Sometimes the methods to try and identify the population are different. Sometimes they're, they're better, sometimes they're worse. But there's a lot of divergence. It's, it's really some people are trying to talk more about sexual and gender minorities as a as a group, and making sure we address both. As you know, the language keeps evolving. Non-binaries is much more common, and so uh, researchers are trying to find ways to uh, that people will be able to understand, but will uh, help make those umbrella categories clearer and simpler.
I just want to remind listeners that you're tuned into COVID Calls, and we're talking today to Stuart Landers uh, with my co-host Eleanor Mays about LGBTQ health and COVID-19. And I actually, I just want to follow up actually a question to both of you provoked, Stuart, by what I thought was a stunning piece of data that you just shared a moment ago about the fact that you said there are about five states in the District of Columbia that had actually taken the sort of step of, of making it uh, sort of government practice um, to collect LGBTQ health statistics explicitly. And so that number seems, and then you say that, but it hasn't actually been actualized. So that seems impossibly small to me. It shows you how little I know about that. And that to me, I don't know how, how you explain that. And I want to, Stuart, I want to get you to react to this first. And Eleanor, I want to give you a chance to weigh in on this as well. I mean, to, I just don't see, how can I see that in any way other than the sort of persistence of a kind of structural homophobia in society that we think we've moved past, but then when in the midst of this pandemic, you're like, well, actually, we're just not collecting the important data we need because that structure is very much still in place. Let me give you one specific example of that, which I think kind of captures it. In California, where there is actually, as I said, legislation that uh, uh, sexual and gender minority information be collected in healthcare settings, they decided that COVID test sites were not healthcare settings. So they didn't have to collect it. Wow. Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. It's deadly serious. I, you know, I don't, yeah. I mean, thank you again for sharing that, that detail, but it's really, it's really telling. And I guess I don't, I can't see that. I mean, one could say if you're trying to apologize for that, well, it's a disaster. People are just trying to react however they can, but it just feels like an extension of decisions that have already been made. I don't know, Eleanor, if you wanted to come in on this, this topic at all. Yeah. I mean, you, you kind of see the parallels with with society as a whole that you know if even if things are at nationwide appearing to move move uh, you know more in a more progressive direction in terms of attitudes towards the LGBTQ community um, that the it has the the ability to permeate the bureaucracy is a whole nother a whole nother can of worms um, you know a lot of times you you encounter attitudes in bureaucracy of okay well uh that acquiring that data is is not priority right now it's 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 seen as you know um kind of second of second impo secondary importance to to kind of gather that uh the data of of all these health impacts on on the lgbtq community and Frankly, it like like you said, Stuart, it's it's a vicious cycle of, uh, you know, the data isn't collected, and so then we don't understand how these groups are more adversely affected by by disasters such as as the COVID nineteen pandemic, and so then there's no impetus to collect future data on other health issues for for this for these communities, and so um, the I I understand the difficulties in, in you know having a limited number of questions you can ask your respondents and having, you know, a limited area for response from, from a community that, it, that has a, a very large swath and, and diverse labels. But, um, you know, I think that fact coupled with, with the, the increased amount of the LGBTQ community that 
identifies as um, another form of minority, whether that be in terms of uh, mental health and, and being uh, not part of the neurotypical um, part of society, or whether that be uh, BIPOC uh, and LGBTQ community members, I think that that only tends to kind of exacerbate the, the disparities that we see um, between those different communities. Yeah, well, there's some, there's, you've said so many uh, important things that I'd, I'd love to, to comment on. One of them is, I'll start with the last point, which is that, ironically, um, while people often think that uh, communities of color are more uh, stigmatizing or uh, uh, harder for people to come out, there was just recently uh, Gallup poll data published that not only showed the overall number of Americans who, adults, Americans, who identify as uh, LGBTQ uh, having increased somewhat, but that uh, people of color across the spectrum, uh, non-Hispanic Blacks, non-Hispanic Asian, Latinos, Latinx, all identify as LGBTQ at somewhat higher, not dramatically, but somewhat higher rates than uh, Caucasian or white respondents. So it's it's really uh, not correct to think that somehow uh, homosexuality is still not, you know, allowed in communities of color, that they're more prejudiced or stigmatized than, than in the um, Caucasian mean you know, white community. So, so it's really important that we acknowledge the intersectionality and, and the, the importance of people being able to be both of their identities uh, and, and how that, and be able to study it and make sure we, we know more about what, what's in, uh, impacting them. Uh, there was data showing that, uh, I'm not gonna be able to have the source at my fingertips here, but that uh, LGBTQ people of color we're about twice as likely to be hospitalized for COVID as uh, white uh, LGBTQ people. So it's, it is important. That was, you know, sort of a more limited uh, sample, but but it was a well a well done and published study. I want to um, turn to some parallels here between the HIV AIDS pandemic and COVID nineteen. And in previous COVID calls episodes, I've had the chance to talk with some historians of medicine about, about this. So I was really eager to ask you about this, Stuart, and particularly thinking, first of all, about the testing. And, you know, last spring, so I'm in South Korea where, um, you know, access to testing and infection control was just part of the, what happened. I mean, it was it just rolled out very quickly, very efficiently. But, you know, anybody who was in the U.S. knows last spring it was a real struggle, a real fight to get access, um, to get timely results. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess I sort of wonder how, how you think of that in the context of the history of HIV um, and testing and how that history, I mean, first of all, just to comment on it, but then also what we might have learned from that previous history that could have helped us and might still, mm -hmm. there will be future pandemics, certainly, and future surges and waves of COVID-19. So one doesn't like to lose that parallel if there's something that we can draw from it, I think. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and I do think that there are some important lessons learned. I will, I will say that my first 
reaction when COVID happened and people started to say, this feels so similar to when HIV and AIDS hit, was, whoa, just remember, there were like four or five years when government, no one would talk about it. And here we had all this money and resources pouring in from practically from day one. Also, when one tested positive for HIV in the mid 80s, when once the test became the antibody test became available, people would could lose their health insurance, their housing, their families, they could never have kids. I mean, there were all these incredible life consequences. Now, I'm not saying there aren't consequences to testing positive for COVID, too, especially, you know, in the first half, say, of the pandemic, when people really didn't know how likely they were to get sick and, and what were the other factors contributing it to, to it. So I do think there's parallels in how the messaging can be done to help people sort of overcome some of the uh, stigma and, and fear about it and, and really convince people that knowledge is power. Um, and also, you know, we, we, I'm sure we've all heard a lot about who's the messenger, who's delivering the message, and, um, and where, in what contexts are they uh, being presented to people? Uh, and, and how do you get influencers to begin to support testing or now vaccination? So a lot of those lessons, I think, from HIV do carry over. Um, and, and also what we've learned about uh, uh, structural racism, structural homophobia, uh, and, and, and why some communities are less likely to uh, step up and feel like the health system is going to really be there for them, as opposed to whoa, <laughs> I'm not going to be treated so well here. I haven't been treated that well in the past. So why should I think I'm going to be treated well now? Those dynamics are very similar. I'm, I'm really glad you, met, you started this by making that point, too, that there are important differences. Um, and to re recover that context of the 1980s, I, I, just maybe to follow up on that briefly, there's been some discussion of the role of Tony Fauci, mm -hmm. both at that time and this time. Um, and, and Deborah Burks. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, please, please. Yeah. And so no, I just wanted to say a little bit more, yeah. if, if, if you could, that sort of the, not history repeating itself, but some of the same people in the public health infrastructure of the United States who became so prominent um, and not always, not, it wasn't there was a lot of conflict there, rightfully so, calling the government to account for why it had been so slow in doing research on HIV AIDS. But to see Fauci and Burks back, I wonder what's it, what has that meant to you? <laughs> you know, I, I do think that there was a certain level of comfort in the sense that, um, you know, one thing we've, you know, we I think the pub, we, we tend, all of us tend to forget, and I think, let's say the general public, maybe even more so, is that not all doctors are created equal. So, you know, both uh, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks are very strong in the field of infectious disease. And so, you know, a very basic parallel is that both HIV and COVID are, are infectious diseases. But there's this, all these other areas of medicine. And I think 
I think when we, for a brief period in the Trump administration, uh, was it Scott Adams? I'm not sure if that's the right name, but he was the, he had suddenly for a brief period became uh, sort of the, one of the yeah. leaders in the, within the administration on COVID. Are and, you talking to this guy at Stanford? So, I think Atlas, maybe. I don't remember. Atlas, that's right. Is that the guy you're thinking of? Yeah, yeah. the guy at Stanford. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, but, you know, did not have an infectious disease background at all and and was just the wrong person to really have an understanding and the technical knowledge. So, you know, let's be plain about it. it it's a hard choice to decide if you're going to support an administration that you may feel is a little not aligned with your values. But when you're in a crisis where people need help and guidance that from people who have that wisdom, you know, I don't envy either of them. And I think, you know, it's it's been interesting in a way as almost a case study to see the two of them side by side and kind of how, you, you know, Deborah Burke survived, but but Fauci made out a lot better and survived a lot more prominently and and with less controversy. And uh, but you know I don't, I don't envy either of them, and I think they were certainly both well intentioned. When it comes to you know HIV in you know in twenty twenty one, are there should there have been you know I guess twenty nineteen awareness of, of monitoring HIV, both na nationwide and, and globally, and, and um, kind of ability to, to identify um, outbreaks and, and such. Should, should the, that response to COVID-19 have been more informed due to, you know, better, better abilities to, to be tracking HIV recently? Has that, has, does that exist? Has that, has that um, improved? That that's a great question too. You know, I, I think you know I've, uh, one of the things lessons that I feel came out of that was that and this is kind of a big issue now in in many sectors that messy democracies may not be so good at contact tracing, and it seems like uh, cultures. It's not just authoritarian, but also just cultures where there's more sort of sense of community and communal well-being. We're much more willing to share information, to understand the importance that individual actions play for the health of the collective. Whereas our maybe Western notions of independence and individualism seem to make uh, contact tracing, a uh, just not very successful here. I mean, and there was a lot of money and a lot of effort put into it. I'm not, I'm not saying it had no impact. I'm sure it had some impact, but it really, uh, I, I, I think, I think partly what we saw too was I think we saw leaders instinctively kind of understanding that maybe this wasn't this wasn't the best place to invest resources. So so it was kind of this push and pull of not necessarily having all the resources that were necessary and uh, the resistance that many people had to participate in in something like contact tracing, which you know again did not work with HIV. 
because of the uh, uh, the lack of ability for contact tracing to fit uh, the nature of the HIV epidemic and how things spread between injection drug use and same-sex, male-to-male sex. Those were both highly stigmatized behaviors that people were not willing to talk about in in, in enough uh, 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 robustness to really make those efficient ways. So, so I think we have to think a little bit more about how you uh, use some of the tools of public health, and I, I do think there's going to be a lot of exploration about that. I want to say something too. We were, t- you know, talking about like now there's a vaccine for COVID, and there's prep for HIV. I don't know if. Uh, if that's something of interest, but we are certainly uh, finding that a lot of, certainly a lot of the medical community really believes in, in biological prevention and, and treatments. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with them. They're wonderful. They work. But I think another parallel between uh, HIV and COVID was that it's not that simple. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting what you bring up about, uh, you know, attitudes towards COVID prevention and, and in terms of the U S versus with other countries, um, kind of that attitude of collective, uh, kind of caring for the collective and, and and it, you know, makes me wonder about, uh, if, if the effectiveness of, of prep as a, as, uh, a method that's like as how how well it's been adopted by by the LGBTQ community, um, whether or not that reflects um, kind of the attitude, whether or not the LGBTQ community has a more collective attitude than than broader broader American culture on the whole in terms of when it comes to preventative um, health measures and and. You know, it's an interesting point you raise about um, that. You know, they're they're not exact parallels of each other between the vaccine and and prep in these two pandemics. Well, you know, if you go strictly by the numbers, I, I guess it would I would it, I would have to say somewhat sadly that the percent of eligible, roughly speaking, of eligible people for prep, you know, it, who are receiving prep. Is probably in the twenty-five to thirty percent, maybe thirty-five percent range. So, if you look at and and we've had prep now for several years. So, while vac- we may also say vaccination is not going quite as well as we want, you're looking at at higher numbers there. So, I'm not sure we can say the LGBT community is is better, but I don't think we could say it's worse either, because to the point I was starting to make about biological solutions, what we're learning with PrEP is that you know, private people with private insurance are on PrEP at higher rates than people with public insurance or no insurance. People of color are less likely to be on PrEP than their white counterparts. So we're seeing the same societal, structural aspects of racism, of 
uh, of of our uh, capitalistic notion of of healthcare as a as a commodity rather than uh, a service and a right uh, coming up, you know, time and time again, and and I think you know those barriers are less likely to be overcome for in some ways for the um, population vulnerable to HIV than for uh, the, for COVID, right? There's been all these attempts to say, you know, the vaccinations will be free, the testing will be free, the medical care, the hospitalization will be free. And we know it hasn't worked out quite the way uh, those pronouncements were have intended, but at least they were there. I, I never heard anyone say uh, all the care for HIV will be free. There's good public programming. Brian White's an amazing, terrific program, but nobody's ever said all the care would be free. Do you do you attribute that to to more than just you know the the sample size of, of people who are affected by HIV versus the the scale of, of COVID nineteen as a global pandemic, or do you think that um, you know it it's specific to the stigma associated with, with each pandemic that, um, that, that kind of availability hasn't, hasn't been made possible for, for HIV previously. Well, um, I'm a uh, technical advisor to, a, I think this is going to answer your question. It's not quite on the, the sample size, but, but let me, I'm, I'm working uh, as a technical advisor to a project that's actually trying to look at the intersection between the HIV epidemic and the opioid epidemic. And so uh, just recently that project did a survey of uh, basically, you know, kind of caseworkers and uh, uh, case managers working with clients with HIV and those working with people with opioid uh, disorder. And the people with opioid disorder had a much worse uh, rate of knowledge about PrEP uh, and understanding about PrEP than the uh, people working with people with HIV had about uh, harm reduction methods for opioids. So, you know, the intention wasn't to measure extent of stigma or, <laughs> but, but to some extent, you, you saw, okay, it's it's interesting. Why is this? You know, um, so I do think the association with with stigmatized behavior. I mean, the one thing, one big difference you do have to say is that you know people got COVID in in many many ways, but not particularly in stigmatized ways. But you know, one of the major challenges of it was it was transmitted in, in very ordinary settings where you shared air and people share a lot of air <laughs> in this society, <laughs> but, you know, differently than, than having to have sex or having to share a needle. Just a quick reminder that you're listening to COVID calls and talking to Stuart Landers today about LGBTQ health and COVID-19 with my co-host Eleanor Mays. Um, Stuart, I've learned a lot from you in this conversation already. And then you also um, sort of give me this sentence, which I now can't stop thinking about, that messy democracies <laughs> might not be so good at contact tracing. And um, I just I would just want to underline that and think more about that and what we can do with that observation 
because um, another thing that messy democracies do sometimes in the United States, at least, is lurch back and forth for different ideological orientations. So we call it a democracy, but you know, we can lurch back and forth from Obama to Trump to Biden administration. And some people would say, well, that's a, that's a healthy democracy with a wide range of views. And we get, this is what the, you know, the public square is all about. And if you're mm -hmm. uncomfortable, somebody else is comfortable, you wait your turn. Okay, that's our civics lesson for today. But um, you know, that has, I think that has real implications for public health where you need consistency. And the, as going back to something else we were talking about earlier, the consistent collection and aggregation of data Mm -hmm. so that there aren't big gaps in the data. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if you, maybe we can open this up a little bit more mm -hmm. and, and get you to talk about differences that you may see going from the Obama administration to Trump and then Trump to Biden in the, in the broader context of LGBTQ health. And then maybe we can zero in a little bit on what that's meant. We're also seeing like a real time I don't know what else to call it, but an experiment going from the Trump administration to the Biden administration in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. So I, I wonder any part of that you want to pick up. And I'm curious how you see it as a person who tracks all of these issues over time. You know, it's a great issue. It's a great issue to discuss. And I love the way you characterize that as lurching sort of back and forth. I don't necessarily think um, the lurching is so bad. Although I think your point about data is well taken, that you you do want to have some consistency, uh, at least so you can track the impact of these lurches. Um, but one of the thing, you know, I, one of the things I think we learned more. Uh, I think we've seen this pattern for a while, but I think we've also seen growing use of executive orders and uh, and, and of fiscal resources and of uh, you know, strategies that are, you know, reapportioning money that didn't really exist for something to move it to something else. So I think we've seen a lot of that. And I think we've seen more of it probably in the last three or four administrations than we have in a long time. I, I feel like uh, because uh, LGBTQ issues and now apparently public health issues have become uh, sort of bellwethers for uh, certain uh, types of politics that what we we are seeing more attempts to kind of reverse the previous administration's work. I, I think the Biden administration has handled all of that across the board very responsibly and thoughtfully and not necessarily that, you know, they've taken firm stands in many areas, but they haven't reversed everything. And I think particularly around the vaccine rollout, we were very fortunate to have that change in administration. You can really see a huge change in the speed and the acceptance of the vaccine once the Biden administration came into place. Now it's it's starting to trail off as we start to hit some of the pockets that, as we know, remain sort of politically aligned with Trump and some, many of which believe he's still the legitimate president. So it's, it's complicated. I do think incentives make a difference. You hate to say it, but you know these lotteries and uh, giveaways work. Um, and actually, that's been explored in public health generally. There's been a, there were studies in HIV 
to uh, particularly in uh, uh, countries that uh, don't have a lot of resources about you know paying people basically to take their HIV meds or TB, TB meds. It's been done with too, and it works. So I do think that uh, you know uh, strategic thinking can can help overcome some of these challenges, and and I think uh, we'll see more of that. Given, given you know this this shift to an administration that's you know more more invested in in asking these types of questions and and um, kind of being more aware of of the impact of the pandemic on on communities such as the the LGBTQ community. What if you know if if you were to kind of advocate for a direction for future research to go, where where do you see right now being the most important area to investigate while we're kind of on this cusp of, at least in the United States, um, exiting this stage of the pandemic? Mm-hmm. Uh, challenging, challenging question, but I appreciate it. Um, I, I feel like we really want to understand um, more about, um, sorry, just thunderstorm hit. Uh, how uh, how how decision making happens in communities, uh, and I and I think we're we're moving to to look at that better. Um, you know, uh, Lori Anderson Lori Anderson said language is a virus. Well, you know, politics is a virus, and public health in a sense, you know, beliefs and attitudes are, are, are go viral. And of course, with the internet uh, and the, uh, our, <laughs> the use of artificial intelligence to amplify messages, we are entering a very challenging period. And so I think studying uh, how information moves about, how it becomes accepted, I think those are fascinating areas. Um, and, I, and I think we have to get a handle on that, especially as more technological advances come and you can make people say on video whatever you want them to say. And it's very hard to tell. You know, there may be we caught that, we caught that, but it's all after the fact. So I do think media literacy, um, understanding what sometimes I think it's not even. Uh, what people uh, are get pulled into, but it's what they are uh, needing in a in a sort of almost unrelated sense. What what aspects of community and and fellowship they get by adopting certain ideas, and and so it's it's I think this is a, a right a very ripe field for research going forward. That's so interesting, Stuart, and, and to me it squares very much um, with conversations that I've had with disaster researchers across the board mm-hmm. um, who are really no longer able to treat virality of ideas through social media and misinformation, disinformation, conspiracy, to no longer treat those as epiphenomena of a disaster, but actually take them on board as quite central to the inquiry. And in some ways, I guess it's an extension of, a, of an older and very important, you know, subfield in public health around health communication. But that 
that somehow has to become, and if I'm hearing you right, I mean, we got to really take that on board as a much more central part. I, I don't know if that continues to be a struggle. I mean, in mainstream disaster research, like social science disaster research, that kind of media literacy research and, and virality, you know, of information kind of research has been minimized a bit. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know if we can do that anymore. No. I don't, I don't know either, but but I also think like access to the platforms. Uh, mm. Yeah, obviously that's been a big issue with uh, Twitter and Facebook and other places. But 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 also, you know, for uh, uh, the dark web, uh, you know, Fox broadcast versus CNN versus MSNBC. Right. You know, there's there's you, you know our our First Amendment rights are 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 incredibly precious. But you know they're not the same everywhere, and they're not even the same in liberal democracies in in Europe. So I think uh, you know there may be some interesting court cases down the road too that will come out of this and say what are the parameters in which uh, these platforms operate and 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 who controls what what's said there and and what are the standards. So we're um, we're up on time and um we've been a little greedy i hope you'll forgive it with your time but i if it's okay i'd like to get one more question in as we finish up today and it has to do with memory and um kind of coming back to some of that discussion we were having earlier about thinking about hiv aids and covid and what we can draw perhaps as lessons from the one that help us with the other um i've had a lot of guests on covid calls who are invested in making archives of this time mm. Um, COVID calls itself is, an, is one small effort towards that. And it seems like learning about memorialization and memory work, attention to PTSD, um, all are things we should pay a lot of attention to from the example of the AIDS pandemic. And that there's maybe very useful things there mm -hmm. that can be applied as we think about long COVID, as we think mm -hmm. about stigma for COVID survivors who um, I think feel in a very real way that they may not be taken seriously by the health um, infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And that also in the United States, we've had over 600,000 people die of this and the number is increasing. And there's a lot of memorialization that's going to have to happen if people don't want to just act mm -hmm. like this never happened. And I refuse to do that. And I know most others refuse to do that. So anything in there, I wonder if you can help us sort of draw those parallels a little bit. Yeah, I agree. I agree. That's very important. And uh, I think some of the most uh, potent images out of the Biden administration have been those attempts to memorialize. Um, and uh, and I also, you know, what I've been saying, you know, we talked earlier about you know, as we transition maybe back to more public spaces in certain places, not every place. Uh, but we're, we're kind of, we kind of all have PTSD. So it's not, it's not one group sort of trying to care for another group. It's, it's just kind of complicated. How do we all kind of emerge from this? And I do think that that memorialization and, and documentation are crucial. I worry a little bit about society's attention spans. I'm interested, you know, to hear other thoughts. Yeah. 
Eleanor, let me bring you in on this and get your thoughts on it. Yeah, I mean, you know, thinking thinking as Stuart was just saying about how, you know, public health information dissemination is, is changing exponentially right now. And we saw that with this pandemic and we're going to continue seeing that. I think so too is the kind of attitudes towards memorialization and, and especially with, with COVID-19 being a pandemic that, um, you know, permeated households so so thoroughly across across the globe, but you know, really was not um, made visible as as some previous uh, previous pandemics have been, especially in terms of activism. I think that as we as we begin to process, as you know, as society begins to process what the radical change that's happened over over the past year and a half. Um, that we're going to see a lot of of new attitudes and and approaches towards this memorialization, and I I, um, I think that's going to be true uh, no matter the intersection of of um, people who've been affected by COVID and and other other minorities and identities. Can Can I add one more point to your please? I I almost said this at the first question about what's my strongest memory, but. One of, one of my first and strongest memories was, I don't think I've ever been a part of something that the entire world was experiencing at the same time. Mm. And that was just, that was just a phenomenal feeling. And I have to say now, I, I wish maybe the whole world had been able to respond in a more unified and cohesive way. But I do feel like there's progress and I feel like there's more and more acknowledgement that we're all one and what happens in one place affects another. And so maybe there's something there. Just a reminder that you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls most weekdays live at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Please join me tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time when I talk to Professor Sari Altschuler, uh, a literary expert. And we're gonna talk about uh, the attempt to make sense of COVID-19 and pandemics more generally through literature and film. So please do join me for that discussion. And let me just take a moment here to acknowledge my co-host, Eleanor Mays, and thank her for joining this discussion with Stuart Landers today. Just a really vital hour um, of discussion, Stuart. Thank you so much for taking time to talk about these many different aspects of LGBTQ health and COVID-19. Really appreciate it. Thank you both. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for being here. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time.